You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. At the very beginning of the Bible, we see God's good vision for the world, creation in harmony with humanity, and humanity in harmony with God. Join us for our series, Sacred, Genesis 1 and 2. Today's scripture comes from Genesis 2, 8 through 15. Now the Lord, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. You know, last week, my family and I had a really, a truly life-changing experience. And that was that we discovered the honey crisp apple. <laughs> we got a bag from Costco, which is always a good place to get things anyways. And there were many times throughout the week where many people in the family stood around the kitchen and we sliced it up and ate it and just said, the whole Apple community has been lying to us for, for decades because now we have experienced this amazing Apple. No more red delicious, no more golden delicious, not even any Fuji or John of Golds in the Pennington household anymore. It is the Honeycrisp Apple, and it is amazing. Now, what's amazing about this Honeycrisp Apple is that it actually hasn't been around that long. Some of you have known about it much longer than us. We're kind of late to the, to the uh, Apple scene here. But it was developed in the 80s and 90s. It was first released in 1997. So 25, 30 years ago, here's the, the amazing thing. No one had ever had this amazing Apple. The Honeycrisp Apple is a cultivar. That is, it's a human invention that comes from years of thoughtful crossbreeding of different apples to produce this one. It was produced by the uh, Horticultural Research Group at the University of Minnesota, who owned the copyright of the trademark on it. And it was produced because of its crispness as well as its sweet and acidic taste at the same time. And it is delicious. Now, what is amazing about the, the Honeycrisp is that, again, humans actually made this this apple. Thoughtful, hardworking, creative, intentional people thought about different aspects of apples and created an apple that could not exist on its own. In fact, the the Honeycrisp blossom is sterile. It cannot, the tree cannot produce itself. It has to be cross-pollinated with another tree. So it, it could not have developed in nature. Humans developed this. Now, not creation ex nihilo, not creation out of nothing like God alone can do, but still humans created this apple. And it's actually just one example of thousands throughout history of where humans have used horticulture and animal husbandry to make new things, to be what we call sub-creators, 
can think about the domesticated dog and how many different breeds of dog that have been developed, the difference between a Pomeranian and a pit bull and a Great Dane and a golden retriever. Sheep have been husbandried over the years to produce longer and better wool. Chicken, pigs, horses, insects, wheat, berries, all these things have been developed through human ingenuity to be better than what they found. Now, I bring this up here because here we are in Genesis 1 and 2 in this, ser- this sermon series we're calling Sacred, where we are focusing on the fact that God made everything and he made it good. He made it good and beautiful. Eventually in Genesis 3, we're going to see that humans mess things up. But the problem is, and the point of our whole series is that we can't start the story there because that's not where the biblical story starts. The biblical story starts and ends with the emphasis on God making things good. And today, we want to go back again into chapter one and pull on a thread, the thread of the image of God, and talk about what it means for humans to be made in the image of God, meaning that we end up being sub-creators, And the foundation of it is back in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Let me read these verses for you again, as I did last week. Genesis 1 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth itself and every creature that crawls upon it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and every creature that crawls upon the earth. So last week, we talked about how this being made in the image of God works out in us being embodied, that we are embodied creatures. And that leads leads us right into the text that is for today. But to reiterate what the image of God primarily means is that we are both God's representatives and we are rulers in his place. Those two R's are the best way to remember what it means to be made in the image of God, that we are the physical representation of God in the physical earth. We're not like God because he's not created and we are created, but we are still his representatives and we, are, we also rule in his behalf because, you see, in the ancient world, the image of God language is, is a royal one. It's what a king does with his signet ring. He stamps it into clay or he makes a statue in his image. The idea of an image of God in us, which is what the Bible is talking about, is that we are like vice regents. We are kings and queens ruling over God's creation. You just saw that in that account in that from Genesis 1 as well. We're placed in God's garden. Now, again, in Genesis 3, we're going to mess all this up, but it means that our ruling and our representing is going to get totally messed up. But what we need to understand is what doesn't go away is the fact that we are still made in God's image, and that is still our role as humans, imperfectly now, but still our role to both represent God and to rule in his place. And that leads us to our text, which Lindsay read. Let me read it for you again from Genesis 2. And I want you especially to pay attention to how this ends in verse 15. But let me read it for you again. Now, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and he put the man that he had formed, which we talked about last week in being 
formed from the ground. And the Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll come back to those later. And a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. And from there, it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there's gold, and the gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are there too. And the name of the second river is the Gihon, and it winds through the entire land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, and it runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. To work it and to care for it. Now, this image of the Garden of Eden, as far as, far as we can tell, what the word Eden means is delight. This is a, the, the image here is that this is a, a garden of delights. And no matter, you know, we don't know exactly where this place was, but what's very clear is that it is a place of bountifulness and beauty. It is verdant herbage. It is a land rich in water and trees and precious stones. In other words, God is not stingy, even though that's what the, the serpent will say about him later, that he's trying to hold things back. God is not stingy. This is a picture of abundance in every way. And that last verse is the key, that God puts his apex of creation, the one made in his image in this garden of delights, to cultivate it and keep it. Because you see, the, the image here of the earth is not, it's not like from a fantasy novel where it's kind of like a magical place that maintains itself. No, it is, it needs someone to care for it, to cultivate it, to develop things out of it, to cross apple trees together and produce a different kind. And so we see that physical labor isn't a consequence of sin. It's part of being human. It's part of being made in God's image. And we also see here the beauty of who God is for us. You see, if you look at other ancient contemporary creation stories, do you know how humans are depicted in them? They're depicted as slaves who are made to please the gods who are lazy. That is the exact opposite of the picture of Genesis, where humans are said to be the ones made in the image of God himself and then placed in this garden of delight to do the meaningful work of caring and cultivating it. And this week and next, we're going to be talking about what this means for this image of God to be worked out in us. And what I want to talk about today is what it means for us to be sub-creators and builders of beautiful things. And I have three points I'm going to go through this morning. The first is just I want to explain the biblical logic of this idea that you and I are sub-creators. And then I want to just apply it with two other statements that are really invitations. So here's the first statement, the biblical logic of being sub-creators. I don't know if you've heard that term, sub-creator. It actually comes from Tolkien, as far as we know, J.R.R. Tolkien of Lord of the Rings fame, friend of C.S. Lewis. He wrote a famous essay called On Fairy Stories, where he talks about the work of writing and painting and all these kind of things as being sub-creators. Again, we're not creating out of nothing like God does, but we are creators underneath him. And their, their mutual friend, Dorothy Sayers, who is also a writer, she said it this way, the characteristic common to God and man, what's true about God and man, is apparently the desire and the ability to make things. That's very interesting. Because if you remember, the emphasis, again, that we were just saying is that in Genesis, 
Humans are made in God's image. And what does God do? He, he brings order out of chaos. He separates light and dark. He speaks things into being. And everything that he creates and crafts and molds and shapes, he says is good. And, and that, that's a fine translation, what we see in Genesis 1, but we can also translate that word as beautiful. Because the, the truth of what's being said there is kind of, we don't really have a word that means good and beautiful. Good, like, in the sense of, like, morally right, it's good, but also beautiful in the sense that it's pleasing. It's aesthetically pleasing. And that's what Hebrews, that's what Genesis 1 is telling us here, is that everything that God made is good and beautiful. Now, here's the logic. Because we are made in God's image, and he is a creator of good and beautiful things, that is what we are as well. That's what we are called to do. We have that same drive in us, that same desire in us to create and craft and bring order out of chaos. So whether for you it's writing a story or digging a straight ditch or building a koi pond or making a logistics plan, or making a beautiful spreadsheet where all the formulas were just right, or painting a wall or a picture, or welding something new out of multiple pieces of metal, or preaching a hopefully inspiring sermon, or planning out traffic patterns. So if you know you need to repave a bunch of interstates that can join, how are you gonna do the traffic patterns? Planning that out, and then building the machines to do the paving, organizing the workers to do the work, designing the software to issue the paychecks, entering the data into the system, somebody cutting down the trees and then transporting it to the mill and then shipping it to Dunder Mifflin so the checks can be printed, whatever it is, all of those things, every bit of that and everything in between is being in the image of God. It's being a sub-creator. It's doing what God has put in us by stamping his very self on us. Now, some of you know, my father died when I was two years old, so a long time ago in 1972. And I have some pictures of him, of course, and I look a lot like him. His nose was a little bigger than mine, but besides that, I look a lot like my dad. His physical image is stamped on me. But because he died when I was a toddler, he had no other impact on me in terms of like development. Yet, it turns out from what my mom has told me and other people in years past who have known me, I'm actually just like him. He was a teacher, a lover of languages, friend of many. I, I, I guess I, I inhabit the world very much the way he did, even though he had no like influence on me to do that, except for that I am made in his image. He was a sub-creator of me in the providence of God that shaped me. So too, God has made every human in his own image. And so those same desires, those same impulses to create beauty are in us. Or take my wife. My wife is an amazingly creative artist. Some of you know that. What you may not know about her is that she loves power tools, she loves building things. A couple years ago for Christmas, I got her a whole welding set, like a professional with a helmet and everything. She is like totally into building things. 
And if you want to see an example of it, come to Trunk or Treat. She designed out of her head and built a spinning wheel that she can spin and win prizes on. So come and spin it and, and marvel at the beauty of this thing that she made up in her head. But where did she get that? Well, it turns out her dad was the same way. In fact, she has some of many of his tools. He's passed away now. And even though he never trained her to use tools and probably wouldn't have even encouraged that, and he's no longer living, and he's a different gender, his image is stamped in her. And so she does these things naturally. So too you, men or women, child or adult, you are made in the image of God, and so you have this impulse to create beautiful things. I love how one Old Testament scholar said it. He said, human creativity far from being an optional recreation for enthusiasts, it's not just for visual artists or something, human creativity has its roots in the nature of the human person as made in the image of God. As God created an orderly and beautiful world and delighted in it, humans are invited to participate in the divine delight by also thinking and acting in ways that are creative. I think another place you see this in the Bible, since we're talking about the biblical logic of this, is Psalm 8. I don't know when the last time you've read Psalm 8. Maybe you've never read it. It's a shocking psalm because it describes humans as sharing not only in the rule and reign of God, but also in the glory that he has, which is really another word for beauty. Let me read for you Psalm 8. It's shocking. The psalmist says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you've established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place. You remember a few weeks ago, we, I kind of tried to go through a bunch of the things when you look at creation. This is what the psalm is doing. He looks at all the things that God has created. The question he has then is, what is mankind? That you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them. You've made humans a little lower than the angels, and you've crowned them. Notice the royal imagery again. You've crowned them with what? Glory, beauty, and honor. And you've made them rulers over the works of your hands. You've put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds and animals of the wild and birds of the sky and fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the picture of humanity that we are so stamped by God that we rule and, and, and function in the world even as he does. That's even after the fall. We can go to other places in the Old Testament that talk about this well. Like, I don't know if in your Bible reading plan, you've, if you're doing that, if you've gotten to a place where you get into all these details about the tabernacle, that God gives super detailed instructions about exactly how the tabernacle needs to be built, how many pomegranates need to be carved, and where they're supposed to be placed, and what color things are supposed to be. Why does God care about that? Because he loves beauty. And he wants us to build beautiful things. In fact, in Exodus 31, we meet Bezalel and Oholiab and their associates who are said to be skilled craftsmen who have wisdom and who are filled with the spirit. They have God's breath in them. And that, what that, that manifests itself in their creating of this beautiful tabernacle. And all this is to say is that humans, you and I know that a human is called a homo sapien. Humans are not just homo sapiens, we are also 
homo faber. That is, we are ones who not only sense the world, that we think, that's what it means to be homo sapiens, we're the humans that also create things. And that is absolutely essential to being made in God's image. So if that's true, that's the biblical logic of what it means to be made in the God's image is that we are sub-creators. What does that mean? Well, that leads me to my two other statements, which are really applications. Here's the first one. If that's true, then we should learn to delight in the beauty of God's creatures sub-creating. We should learn, it is something you can learn, to delight in the beauty of God's creatures sub-creating. One of the things that's said about God the most in the Bible is that he is full of delight and joy. Do you know that? I mean, do you think about God that way? Do you think about God as full of joy and delight? Because that's what the Bible says. One of the places we see it is in Proverbs chapter 8, where wisdom is this like personification of God. Like wisdom is this, this put into a character who is there at creation and the agent of creation. And it says, wisdom says that, that she was filled with delight, rejoicing in the whole world and delighting in mankind. That's how God is described in the Bible, that he is full of joy and full of love. That's why it's one of the fruits of the spirit. And that out of his superfluity, there's your new word for the, for the day. It's a great word. Superfluity. Do you know what that means? It means like an unnecessary, overabundant number of something. And if you think about God's creation, it is superfluous, right? It is overabundantly full of things. And out of that, God creates. And then because we are in his image, then we do the same thing. We sub-create an innumerable number of things. Just think about all the amazing things humans make. Music, of course, Taylor Swift, but many other musicians as well. Art, stories, movies, chainsaws, hot plates, hot tubs, coffee grinders, gutters. Have you thought about what a great invention gutters are? They're wonderful. Cardboard boxes. That's a good idea. Cardboard boxes that some human came up with. Retractable dog leashes. Those are really handy. Any dog owners here? You can just press a button and they can't go any further. It's a brilliant, somebody thought that up. Some human thought up a retractable dog leash and went to the work of creating it. When's the last time you had a good bowl of Apple Jacks? Maybe that doesn't sound good to you, but a good bowl of Apple Jacks. Somebody made those up. Somebody created those. Somebody said, here's chocolate, which required a whole bunch of processes of refining sugar. Here's a strawberry. We're going to put those together, right? Bicycles, motorcycles, cars, helicopters, airplanes. I fly a fair amount. And I still am never, I never cease to be amazed that when I get off an airplane, maybe I've been in Texas or South Carolina or somewhere, you know, just a couple hours before, and I get, walk to my car, I'm driving in the interstate to get on 264 to go home. It strikes me every time, just like 
two hours before this, three hours before, four hours before this, I was like a really long ways away, like in a whole other state, a whole other place. That is amazing that humans have invented all that goes in to making an airplane and maintaining airplanes and fueling airplanes and landing airplanes and the tires that went to the landing. You just start thinking about all the things. Here's my point, brothers and sisters. Here's a phrase that should be part of your vocabulary. Way to go, humanity. That's a great phrase. Way to go, humanity. I find myself saying that a lot. And I want to encourage you that... If you show up in life skeptical and cynical and angry at the world and frustrated at the world, you need to have more faith to recognize that God has made humans, Christians and non-Christians, in his image, and they are constantly, they can't help it, constantly creating beautiful things. And a big part of faith is seeing that and rejoicing in that. Rejoicing in the fact that that is the image of God inevitably coming into the world. It is all a gift of grace to us. And this isn't even just when things are going well that we create beautiful things. Even in the midst of pain and sorrow and frustration and disappointment and death, humans can create beautiful things. Maybe you've heard of the cellist of Sarajevo, Vedran um, Shmelovich, who was a Bosnian musician, he was in the he was trapped in Sarajevo in 1992 when the city was sieged. You know something about that war, and there were there was a whole group of people that were lined up to get food. They were starving, lined up to get food, and a mortar shell came in and killed 22 of them. And to express his grief, he was a professional musician. He took his cello. And in the open air and these blown out buildings throughout Sarajevo, including on that spot for 22 days straight, he played his cello, even though it could have been snipers around and other mortar shells coming in. He created beauty even in the midst of this pain and destruction. That's the image of God in us. And so my invitation to you, friends, is to lean into that to open your eyes, to have the faith to see that God is real and that he is using humans and to delight in that. One of my favorite Christian artists, Rich Mullins, said it this way. He said, there's so much beauty around us and I just have two eyes to see, so I'm just going to keep looking. (laughs) I love that line. That is a way of living that is full of faith in God, that you are looking in the world for the beauty that is there. I also think of a great essay that C.S. Lewis wrote a long time ago called On Bicycles. And he talks about the, the human experience that, use, use riding a bicycle as an example, that before you know how to ride a bicycle, you're unenchanted. Like you have no idea what a bicycle can do for you, like a, a young child or something. But then once you learn to ride a bicycle, you enter this age of enchantment. Like it's amazing the world that it opens up to you and all the things you could do. When I, when I was growing up in the 70s, I was on my bike all the time, every day growing up. That was just how I lived. It's an enchanted time. But then what happens? You get older and there's wounds and there's hurts and there's disappointments and there's frustrations and there's responsibilities and you get disenchanted. Maybe you get a car and so the bicycle loses its enchantment. You get disenchanted. And then many of us get stuck in our lives 
overall with this sense of disenchantment. But what, what we need to rediscover is a, is a re-enchantment of the world, which you can do with eyes of faith to see that we are made in God's image and that that means that we are sub-creators. And that leads me to my second and final statement, and that is, no matter your job, no matter what you do, your life calling is to build beautiful things as God's daughters and sons. No matter what your job is, whether you, whatever you find yourself doing, maybe you're a junior high student, maybe you're a college student, maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, maybe you're a business owner, maybe you're a fast food worker, a salesman, a barista, an IT specialist, a painter, an architect, a retiree, whatever it is, Because you're made in the image of God, whatever your vocation is right now, even if it's not the thing you want to do with your whole life, your calling, I guarantee you, is to be a builder of beautiful things. We are priests of beauty. That means the gospel message of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ saving of of our sins and bringing us into the kingdom. We're priests of that, but we're also priests of beauty in all that we create because that is what it means to be made in the image of God. And Christians of all people who are united now to the second Adam, the son of God, the one who is perfectly the image of God, as Hebrew says, perfectly manifests God on earth because he is the God man. Those who are united to him by faith of all people, we have the ability and the calling and the joy of being sub-creators in the world, unlike anybody else. For Christians, there should be no sacred secular divide. All that God has made is beautiful and holy and good. And we who are Christians are engaged in it. And in fact, not only is this our calling, this is what's good for us. This is what actually brings us satisfaction because this is who we're made to be. I've read a number of things on on dopamine. Maybe you have as well. You know what dopamine is? It's this neurotransmitter that our bodies make and it's used to send messages between nerve cells. It plays a huge part in our satisfaction and our pleasure and our human abilities to think and plan even. But something's happened to us. And I love technology. This is not an anti-technology thing, but we need to be aware that something has happened. There are a lot of studies that are showing that with our entertainment complex and especially with the internet and, the, and social media, the, the speed at which we can experience things now means that we can get dopamine hits very quickly and very easily. Whether it's Reels on Facebook, which is them trying to catch up with TikTok. You know, the social media decades, right? Facebook's for the old people. Twitter's for the middle age. Instagram's for the 20s, 30s. TikTok's for the teenagers, right? If you didn't know that, you can just evaluate yourself where you are on social media consumption. But whatever it is, every form of social media is, in, is speeding things up because the dopamine fixes feel so good. But what study after study is showing is that when you get too many dopamine fixes and get them too easily without any effort, when you're just a consumer, it actually produces incredible dissatisfaction. Dissatisfaction. Do you know where humans before this era would get dopamine hits? And do you know where you can still get the best dopamine hits? Creating things. When you create things, whether it's a spreadsheet or a 
a painting, whatever it is, that, you know that that feels good and that is God's design at your neurotransmitter level to know that you are doing what you are called to do. And again, this is, anti, this is not anti-tech or anti-internet, but it's saying be wise and pay attention to the fact that when you get these dopamine hits in that constant way, it doesn't really satisfy it. Lean into being a creator of things. I love how the rabbis talk about that what we should be involved in, I think it's true for Christians as well, is tikkun olam, the repair of the world. There's a phrase they use that's great, a Hebrew phrase, lataken olam malakat shaddai, which means basically all under the, the, the repair and the rule and the reign of God. The story of the Bible, you see, is one of goodness and creation, and goodness and new creation. And we live in this in-between time where we're still made in the image of God, but we are engaged now in the work that Jesus himself is doing, which is repairing the world. And a big part of that, of course, is the proclamation of the gospel, but a big part of that as well is building beautiful things. Because this is what it means to be in the image of God. And this is the long-term reality of the new creation. So I want to invite you to retool your thinking. Maybe you hate your job. Maybe you're just waiting to get some other stage of life. Wherever you are, God has some beauty for you to create. Lean into that. Embrace that as what it means to be made in his image by faith. And so just to wrap this up, you know, as we think about what a polarized age we live in with so much fighting and as we're increasingly in a post-Christian society, really, where the church's, you know, honor is diminishing, instead of being angry, instead of being frustrated, instead of attacking, why don't you build beautiful things? Why don't you build beautiful companies, build beautiful spreadsheets, build beautiful pieces of art? Lean into that because that's what you're made for. And then we invite people into saying, this is who God is. This is what you're made for. That's a beautiful way to be. And in all the midst of this, I don't want you to lose the heart of God for you this morning. Imagine that you have built this beautiful, thriving company that is doing well and doing good and profitable and employs people. Imagine that you've built this and then it is time for you to give it over to your son or daughter. You want them to flourish. You want them to do well. You will bless them and help them every way you can. Friends, that's what God has done. <laughs> he has created this beautiful world, and he's inviting you as ones made in his image to lean into that. Some of you don't have to imagine that. Some of you have done that with your businesses. That's good. But imagine that is what God is doing through and to and for us. This is God's heart towards you today. He is your father who loves you and wants to see you flourish and thrive. So lean in to your role as a sub-creator. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.